Hello and welcome to the Quadcast. I am John McAlevey. And while the Quadcast podcast is mainly for folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of the Quadcast as your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. Let me start off by thanking my two guests from our previous show, Rich Need, Certified Driver Rehabilitation Specialist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, and Peter Ruprecht, President of DriveMaster Total Mobility in Fairfield, New Jersey. If you missed my back-on-the-road installment of the podcast, it, along with my other 14 episodes, can be found visiting my website, which is www.quadcast.org. Rich and Peter provided some excellent information as far as how someone recovering from a catastrophic injury can begin the process of driving a vehicle again, as well as what type of adaptations can be made to those automobiles to make that process easier. I have worked with both gentlemen in the past, and I swear by their expertise. Thanks, guys. I appreciate your joining me. I also had the pleasure of being interviewed by my alma mater, Providence College, last week. Liz Kay and Chris Judge, two fellow friars, reached out for me to appear on the PC podcast. I must thank my wonderful sister Susan for getting the ball rolling for me in Friartown. Long story short, a link to the conversation will be up on my website ASAP. It was an honor and a pleasure. Divine providence indeed. Changing gears and getting into today's topic. One of the hardest things someone who suffers a SCI or stroke or a life-altering injury has to come to grips with is losing their independence. That, my friends, is brutal. In the blink of an eye, you go from doing everything for yourself to doing next to nothing. Suddenly, things such as taking a shower, pulling a shirt over your head, brushing your teeth and fixing a sandwich become either extremely challenging or not doable at all. When you are still an inpatient, someone is there to either help you complete these tasks or flat out do them. Upon discharge, however, is where the rubber meets the road. Can you do these things by yourself or not? Is it safe for you to be on your own? Are you mentally prepared for all of this? And here is where extreme frustration can set in. It is also where having a home health aid comes in. A home health aid is basically your lifeline for the moment or for however long you will need them. They are, in essence, you before your accident. I must tell you, having to have someone do things for you that you have done for your entire life with ease is demoralizing. And the fact that they don't or can't do them exactly the way you're used to having them done is hard to accept. Because my parents were both working when I returned home, I had my share of home health aides. I will tell you that, although they were kind, part of me truly resented them being there because it meant that I could no longer handle my business. That is a mind scrambler. I had one that was studying to be a doctor. He almost lit my house on fire, however, trying to heat up a can of soup for me. I mean, really, that scared the you-know-what out of me. Another who would diligently help me with my home exercise program, she was excellent, and more than a handful that would fall asleep about 10 minutes into their shift. Truth be told, having a home health aid that you can count on and better yet build a strong relationship with is essential. As I've told you, 
this stranger becomes your caretaker and will make or break your daily life. Folks my age are finding this out now for themselves these days because their parents are getting older and may need assistance of their own. So, this industry is not only for those who have been injured. Finding the right person for mom and dad is not easy. But it is imperative because they cannot be there 24 hours a day to make sure they are well. Things are complicated for all involved now because of this global pandemic. Who wants to let someone in their house these days? Who wants to enter someone's house these days? It is a very fluid situation to say the least. My guest on the quadcast today has a truly remarkable story. While we have not met in person, we have struck up a mutual admiration society through Twitter. After graduating with dual degrees from an Ivy League school and attaining an MBA from another Ivy League school, he embarked on a successful 25-year career on Wall Street. Unfortunately, in 2011, his life would change in a tragic way. But not one to throw in the towel, Ron Gold dusted himself off and adjusted to his new life. In fact, he reinvented himself in a way that benefits many others like me and the folks I spoke about earlier, but himself too. In fact, reading up on Ron's story, a saying that jumps out at me is this, necessity is the mother of invention meaning that the primary driving force for most new inventions is a need. Well, along with his wife, Betsy, Ron chose to address America's broken home care system and thoughtfully change the way families hire home health aides. As someone who needs home care himself each day, Ron's answer was to create Lean on We, a managed marketplace that allows families to find, employ, and manage experienced and highly recommended caregivers. When we get back from this brief time out to pay the bills, Ron Gold will join me. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Infinite Therapy Solutions is a pediatric therapy clinic providing services in Hudson and Essex counties for five years. If your child is having difficulty with speech, motor skills, behavioral triggers, or physical movement, you can count on their exceptional therapists for help. Infinite Therapy Solutions provides physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and behavioral therapy to children ages 0 to 21. Come to a warm, professional clinic to receive the best care to help your child achieve their highest potential. My friend Hillary would be happy to answer any questions for you at 201-455-3144. They take insurances, so call to inquire. There are two locations in West Orange and Bayonne. Check out their website at infinitetherapysolutions.org. And welcome back to the show. Ron Gold has been featured extensively in national print media, including Forbes, Fast Company, the Pennsylvania Gazette, Huffington Post, and the New York Post, in broadcast interviews with Fios One TV News, PIX11, and Ideas and Insights. And he will be profiled in the upcoming book, Falling to Grace, Guideposts on the Road to Redemption. I don't know how we were lucky enough to convince him to come on the quadcast, but it is my pleasure to welcome him to the show. Ron, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. 
as I mentioned in my intro, which, which you'll hear when you uh, get the get the link to this when we're finished, we have never met, but we have become sort of social media friends. I have also emailed you probably a hundred times in the last couple of days, so forgive me for all of that, Ron. And I can't wait to hear more about Lean On We, but and I promise we will do that later. But as I like to do with all of my podcasts, let's begin at the beginning. So, as we both know, these spinal cord injuries that we have endured do not define who we were and who we are. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were doing in your early life? Sure. John, I live in Bergen County now, and I grew up in Essex County in West Orange, so I haven't really moved that far away. I, I think I had a, a similar background to, to several of the other people you've had on the, on the show, mm-hmm. Uh I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up actually in the same town as Kessler, oddly enough. Uh. I remember as a kid driving past Kessler. I didn't know much about it. All I knew is that's a place for people who had gotten hurt and got injured. And I knew I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Little did I know. Absolutely. I grew up in Short Hills and and I comment to my friends uh, that I've had on the show and just, you know, over the years, I mean, how many times did we drive past Kessler Institute and our team buses and never did I really look up the hill? I mean, I knew it was there. I didn't know what it was, but, you know, little did we know there, but by the grace of God, did, did either one of us figure that we would spend, you know, at least for me, the the past 28 years of my life, I've spent in and around the building and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. But boy, as you said, you grow up, you go buy it and you don't even know what's there. That's exactly right. Every time I went to uh, South Mountain Arena to go, to, to go skating. <laughs> sure. And the Turtleback Zoo, right? Exactly. Oh, wow. So I know you mentioned that uh, you played a lot of sports growing up. I also have read that some of the sports that that you really took to were not like baseball or basketball. Uh, Tell us and and our listeners about some of the sports that that you have gotten into that are more outdoorsy type things. Well, yeah, I, you know, as a kid, when I was young, I I, I played all the same sports as everybody else did. I, I really liked football. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not a big guy and I wasn't particularly, I was reasonably fast, uh, for junior high, but there was no way I was going to go any further than that. Uh, and, and, and as I got older, I was intrigued by different sports that were pushing the envelope a little bit more. So for example, I got really into rock climbing in my twenties and, uh, I did a lot of rock climbing and I got to be pretty good. And uh, I'd go up to, there's, there's some good rock climbing a couple hours away in New Paltz, New York. And uh, for, for three or four years, I did a lot of climbing. And then uh, I was reaching up for, I was doing a lead and I was reaching up for a hold and uh, I hit a rock and I, uh, I moved it and it hit me smacking in the face as I looked up. Oh boy. And uh, it knocked me out, broke my jaw. Uh, broke my vertebrae, uh, my ribs, uh, and and uh, and my knee. Uh, but I, I don't know how much you know about rock climbing. But you, you put Zero. pieces of protection into the into the rock to hold you if you fall. Okay. And one of my pieces of protection didn't hold, and then the next one did. And I suppose if that one hadn't worked, uh, I would never have had the later spinal cord injury that I did have. Oh, good grief! So that was sort of a precursor, huh? Yeah, I, I think that that a lot 
lot of the people who have spinal cord injuries, uh, we're, we're, we're very athletic and we, we like to do things and push the envelope a little bit. And that's, I guess, part of the reason we end up having some of these injuries. I, I was a, I was a skier, but I ended up telemark skiing because it was much more challenging than just regular alpine skiing. And uh, I was always looking for, for something else to do. And I did some ice climbing as well. Wow. You are quite the outdoorsman there, I, I hear. Tell our listeners about your college career. I mean, reading your bio was something else. I mean, I was blown away by uh, the schooling that you've been through, the the degrees that you have. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I went to Penn, uh, which is in Philadelphia. It's actually where my dad went as well. My sister ended up going there. And I, I, I loved it there. It was, uh, it was a great combination of, uh, of a real campus school, but also in a city. So you had access to uh, a great city like Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, I made a lot of friends. And I, I kind of went in and I was going to be a history major. And then I was wondering, well, what am I going to end up doing with that? And Penn has a great business school, Wharton. And I, I decided to transfer into the into the business school to get a finance degree because it was so many people were, were, were talking about it and how well recognized it was. And then but I also wanted to do something different. And I got a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Oriental Studies, which is what it was called then, but would be called Asian Studies now. So after UPenn, Ron, tell us about you went for your MBA at Columbia. Tell us what that was like. Sure. I was trying to figure out how I was going to take advantage of, uh, of my interest in business and the ability to make uh, to earn a good living and also to have something uh, different and something to take advantage of my interest in Asia. And what I ended up doing was I became uh, an Asian equity salesperson. So in, in plain English, if you were invested into a mutual fund and they had international equities, I would be uh, a salesperson speaking to them about various options, comparing a, a Japanese Sony stock to a Korean Samsung stock or to compare a, a, a Chinese bank to a, to a bank in Korea. Anything along those lines, I would be uh, speaking to fund managers in various places in the country. And I got to travel in the region and uh, it was so fascinating because I got to, to get in depth in the politics and the socioeconomic trends in countries all the way from Tokyo to Indonesia. And I, and I got to travel extensively to the region as well. Uh, in fact, uh, at one point I was considering uh, being based there for a few years, but that didn't work out. But Hong Kong is just uh, incredible. And uh, I'd love going there probably more than any other place. So that leads us to your career uh, following school, uh, working on Wall Street for 25 years. First, you said you started at Barclays and Lehman. Uh, and then as managing director, you were uh, the institutional desk uh, for the Asian equities market. So tell us about how that came about and how fulfilling a career on Wall Street was. Well, that was this is this is actually what I've been speaking about to some extent. I, Barclays was actually my last job. Okay, and I started out uh, at EF Hutton, and uh, EF Hutton was a big retail name; everybody knew it. And I joined in September of '87. A month later was the October '87 crash, and a month after that, EF Hutton was taken over. And there, so there went that job. Oh, boy. But I, I was there right 
you know, right there at the 87 crash. And then I, later I moved over to Lehman Brothers and I was at Lehman Brothers at 9-11 and Lehman was right across the street from the World Trade Center oh boy. and the World Financial Center. So I was there on the trading floor right next to the window. And I remember when I heard the sound, I looked out the window and I saw a piece of the plane falling and, and hit the ground on fire. But of course, I looked up, I'm on the third floor and I'm looking all the way up and I can't really get any kind of context how bad the fire is or how big the, the, uh, the, the crash was. And they, and they said, oh, it was a small plane, although it seemed very strange to us because it was such a, a beautiful early, uh, early September morning. It, it seemed hard to, to figure that it would be a, a crash. Right. And then the next one came and um, at this point they said, everybody out and uh, – we 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 uh, we all sort of orderly went out of the building, and I w- walked over and I saw people jumping out of the trade center, which oh, is God. the most horrifying thing uh, I've ever seen. And and I was just talking to some people a few days ago at, on nine eleven as we were remembering it, and I, I must have seen a dozen or so people jumping. And after that, it was like enough, oh. and and I had to walk away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's something so I'm sure very, you'll never hard. forget. You never forget, right? No. Speaking not of at all. speaking of never forgetting, uh, I hate to bring this up, but it is sort of why we're talking here today. Take us through the day uh, of your accident. Tell everyone first of all what happened to you and what you remember. Um, you know, in the immediate aftermath. It was uh, Thanksgiving in 2011, Thanksgiving weekend, and it was. What, what I thought was an unseasonably warm Saturday morning, and uh, I was going to uh, to go for a run, but I figured it was such a nice day, uh, I'm going to go biking with a group of friends. And I, I would regularly go for a 45, 50-mile ride on a, on a weekend morning with a group of friends and then come home. Went out that morning, and I remember one, one of the, the guys had bike trouble, so we were waiting around. We were all getting them. Uh, and we ended up going up to Harriman Park in, in New York State, and we were almost home, just a few miles to go, when all of a sudden an out-of-control SUV comes barreling straight at us. Oh. Uh, she uh, she crossed a solid line. She hit my buddy Zach first, and then she hit me head-on without braking. Uh, it was you know one in the afternoon. It was a bright, hot sunny day and and somehow she had apparently fallen fast asleep oh god and that's really sort of the last thing i remember uh they uh they said i went flying over over the suv and then onto the ground mm. and they said actually that i was screaming at her uh, why the f did you do this <laughs> but uh I, I don't remember any of that. I, I do know that the last, the exact last thing that I remember was this, she's coming right, right at me. I can't stop this. I better keep my head as high as possible so it doesn't bear the the impact of the of the crash that's mm-hmm. about to come. Were you wearing a helmet at the time, Ron? I, I was, for sure. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, I was... Immediately medevaced uh, to the nearest trauma unit, which was Hackensack Hospital, and I, I was not expected to survive. I had massive internal injuries. Uh, I had uh, a slew of orthopedic injuries. They had to take out my spleen and uh, 
you know, my hands, my my legs were really badly mangled, and I was in danger of of bleeding out. Mm. Unbelievable! What a story. How, how? Just on a side note, what happened to your friend Zach? Was he was he severely injured? Yeah, he luckily for him didn't bear the brunt of the, the of the crash, and uh, so she, he he went flying off to the side, mm-hmm. and he had to have a hip replacement. Oh, not boy. to make light of that, but right. uh, not, certainly nothing yeah. uh, like like uh, what I was dealing with. Yeah, like fact, a hangnail, I was, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, from my perspective, exactly, but, uh, and not, certainly not from his. Mm-hmm. And and I was uh, I was put in an induced coma for the next several weeks. And in the meantime, I was going through uh, a lot of surgeries. You know, they they talk a lot about um, hypothermia and 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 keeping keeping the spine very cold uh, to prevent scarring or to reduce scarring. But they were they. My life was touch and go, and and a lot of the types of measures that they talk about that they want to do, they couldn't do because they were just they were just trying to save my life. Unbelievable. And Ron, talk about. I know whenever I have folks on, and uh, I can reach back into my own history, is that family and friends were were everything for me. Um, you were, as you said, in an induced coma, but I'm sure your family was there with you and, and take us through when you do come to, um, seeing their faces. I have an extended, uh, great group of friends and family and they, they, they quickly got word. And certainly my wife and my three girls were there and it was so overwhelming that they they couldn't fit everybody in in the uh, waiting room, and they would have food delivered, and and the hospital was getting really uh, annoyed with this. And, <laughs> and my wife Betsy set up a, a caring bridge, you know, one of those those sites where people can put comments in uh, when somebody's in the hospital and and um, not doing well. And it was so overwhelming. She said she got a, over a thousand messages, and she had to close that down. Oh. And everybody was spreading rumors. And how's he doing? Is he alive? Is he is he going to make it? Is does he have another surgery? And it, it was so overwhelming uh, for my family. It, it, you know, somewhat in a good way, of course. That sure. that that she had people to to help. But what was really the most taxing is. My wife had to make life and death decisions for me without being able to confer with me. Wow. And she she became sort of part of the trauma team and they would come by and they would confer with her and she had to make they they, they were trying to save my leg and and uh because my, my femur was really, really uh Jeez. badly mangled. And even today uh, I, my, my right leg is three quarters of an inch shorter than, than my left. And I have an open wound in my femur that we still haven't been able to close. Wow. So I, I have all kinds of, uh, uh, look, we all have stories. I, I know that I, I can tell you this, mm-hmm. you asked me what my first memory is, uh, when I came to, and yes, I have my memory of my family, but the most profound memory for me is when, the the uh, neurosurgeon came into my room and said, "Ron, you're never going to walk again." And I can still see that, and yeah. I I just couldn't process that. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? Right. That's something that that 
you hope n- no one will ever have to tell you and only folks like you and I that have been through a situation like that and, and the other folks that we sit across the tables with uh, in therapy at Kessler and other um, rehab facilities, you'll never know until you hear something like that and you hope that you never will. And what was, other than, you know, all the blood probably drained out of your body, where do you go from there? I mean, you hear that news, do you sort of wheel back? Hey, thanks, doc. I'm going to go back to my room now. No. And in fact, he had to come back again uh, uh, next day or, or whatever it was to, to say it again, because I, I it, it didn't compute. I was like, what do you mean? I, I was just, went out for a bike ride. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong. And and that's the other thing. Uh, it, it, I had a lot of trouble with because I didn't do anything wrong. This, this, it was a negligence of this, this driver somehow fell asleep. And, and you know, I hear stories and people who do crazy things and somehow they get hurt and, 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 and whatever. But I don't know if it, I, I, I've also often thought about that. I don't know if it makes it better or worse that somehow it, it wasn't my fault. Um, but, but you, you start thinking about, well, what is fault? I mean, in, in our world, we know of, you know, plenty of people, things just happen, but even out of our world, I mean, if somebody, somebody comes down with them, uh, multiple sclerosis is, it, that's not their fault. And, and it's no, and, and they have a, just as debilitating, a a problem as we do. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's coming to terms, which. I had a lot of trouble with. I feel exactly the same way. Um, I I had a fall down a flight of steps. I don't remember walking up them. I don't remember falling down them. I often think to myself, you know, had it been something like if I were drinking and driving and I caused something like that, then I would just be so much more angry at myself for kind of throwing my life away if I if I had caused it. So I'm right there with you, Ron. I know exactly uh, where you're coming from with that. Take us through now your rehab. Um, when you get to, did you rehab at Kessler? Yeah, I did rehab. So I was in, I was in uh, at Hackensack for 51 days, all in the ICU. And I remember I actually, uh, 15, uh, 51 days and two days in step down. And uh, they, I remember them all clapping when I finally left the ICU, which is for some reason that uh, I remember that. But anyway, I, 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 I went to Kessler, but it wasn't like I was all well or I was all healed at that point. I was still coming back to Hackensack for surgeries. Uh, I, I had uh, a lot of problems with infection mm-hmm. uh, in my leg, and I had surgeries on my leg uh, over the next, I'd say, four years repeatedly as they as they went through all kinds of steps to try to stabilize it. I, I finally found a doctor, one surgeon who said, I can save this thing, and he uh, he put, um, he did a great job. He he put a uh, plate in and it stabilized it. And, uh, and uh, three or four years later, he was able to take the plate out. And uh, it was great. Um, I, I, the guy was Frank Liberace. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved the guy. That's anyway, awesome. I, 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 I digress. Mm-hmm. I did go to, I did go to Kessler. And, and like I said, I grew up in West Orange. So going, Going to Kessler was, I think, more traumatic for me <laughs> than other people yeah. because here I was going, going back to that place up in the hill that I'd always seen, 
and uh, now I'm a patient there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the I, I remember lots of things about it. I, I do remember that I was still having a really hard time with uh, being paralyzed, and I would cry uh, myself to sleep mm-hmm. almost every night, hoping I pray. And I'd wake up in the morning, everything was a bad dream, right. and uh, it wasn't. And, no. uh, there are no backseas, and sometimes say that in some ways going to Kessel was more difficult than than being in a hospital because yeah, it's no longer about healing you. It's about sort of teaching you to live your life as uh, as a paraplegic, and yeah. and that again is more of this sort of driving everything home. Like I said to you, you know, I was really struck when I listened to Trevor's conversation with you because he he was in medical school, he had his injury, and I, I don't know the exact timing, but he he went back to school, and and there is just no way emotionally I, I would have been in a position uh, to to make that kind of transition as quickly as he did. You and me both. I could have never gone back, you know, in the position that I am with really little to no use of my hands. I don't know how I could have taken notes and I could have held books and read books. And I just don't know how he did it. And I I give him so much credit. What he was able to do uh, is unbelievable. The, The great Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson. Now, Ron, talk to me about let's transition away from Kessler and you make your way home. And that's where I like to tell people this is where the rubber meets the road because you learn how to, you know, in OT, they tell you more than one way to skin a cat. You learn how to do some stuff now as a disabled person. And it's nice because when you're in, when you're an inpatient, there's nurses and there's aides and orderlies that are there to help you. But once you're home, it's like, whoosh, you know, we're going to rip off the scab, uh, rip off the bandaid and now you're home. So tell us how that, uh, being home led to what you are doing now with lean on we. Sure. So I came home like everybody else in the, and you're right. It's, uh, the rubber hits the road. It's a, it's a very difficult transition, uh, because now I'm, I'm there to take care of things on my own. And for a while I had, uh, I had, uh, therapists and nurses and, and all kinds of people coming in. I was still on antibiotic infusions, which I needed to do regularly. So there was a lot of things going on. And, and I also had, uh, a PT at home to try to, to, to gain my strength for me. And I'm sure for most people, the, the emotional recovery and the physical recovery go hand in hand. And as I started to get stronger and able to do some more things, that made a big difference for me. So, for example, when I left Kessler, uh, they had me leave in a power chair. They said, I'm not going to be able to use a manual chair. Um, my shoulder was, was, was too messed up and it would put too much strain. But in a relatively short period of time, I was done with the power chair and I moved uh, to a manual chair, uh, which was a, a great transition for me to have because I, was, I did have use of the hands. And once I had the ability to raise my hand, uh, it, was, it made a big difference for me. Sure. But anyway, uh, back to your question, I had, I had a lot of caregivers coming and going. And it, I, 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 I found out so much about home care, which I had never known before. I, I knew something about home care because my parents had, had care in, in their home. But, but for me, I, I thought, okay, I had, good, I had good private health insurance. Now I need home care and it's going to be there for me. 
but it doesn't work that way. Of course, you don't you don't get home care for more than a short period of time after you get discharged. So that was sort of my first wake up call. My second wake up call is it's it's very expensive. Right. My next wake up call was that if you find a, if you have a caregiver through an agency, that caregiver is lucky to earn half of whatever you're paying out of pocket. And 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 that's shocking because this person's doing all the work and they're really not getting well compensated. And and it becomes a a vicious cycle where they're not well compensated and you get a a, a revolving door because they're always looking for another job if they can get one uh, that pays them a little bit more. And my idea was, okay, this is the time when when companies like Uber and Airbnb and all kinds of other sort of sharing economy companies were being founded. If if we could just have a way to connect uh, the the person needing care and the caregiver directly, uh, then you could hire the caregiver directly. The caregiver would earn more money and you'd still be paying less money than you'd be paying through a home care agency. It just seemed like a, a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's more challenging than just as simple as I did it, but that was the idea. We should come up with a better way to connect the two sides and have a better mousetrap for everybody. It's better for the the person needing care because they're paying less and the caregiver is earning more. And now the caregiver is much more invested in the relationship and you have a much stronger bond and uh, just a much healthier situation. So here's where the the Columbia MBA kicks in in your brain, right? And you start thinking, you know, as you'll hear again in the intro, I I sort of prefaced it as uh, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Is that what you started to think? That, you know, not only... Um, will this be able to help me, but it'll be able to help other folks that are like me. And as you mentioned, the caregivers themselves. That's exactly right. And that, and that, that was the, the mindset we had when we went about it. So I started Lean on We with my wife. And uh, the idea was we can, we can bring the two sides together. And uh, we've, we've helped uh, somewhere around uh, 1,400 or 1,300 families uh, throughout the metropolitan New York area find home care. And they've overwhelmingly been incredibly happy. And that's, um, for me, it was a transition away from, from Wall Street and, and, and capitalism. And here was a way for me to say, hey, I, I found a problem in the way people are getting home care. And I need to, uh, I need to see if I can figure out a way where I can make a difference in, in, in that regard and, and help both sides uh, find uh, a better relationship. And, and that's been really rewarding, I have to say. That's amazing. Ron, tell our listeners how they can find out more about Lean On We. Sure, you can go to the website. Uh, it's leanonwe.com. Because I love when the you need na- help, I love the name. You, you got to tell us to where on. that came from, too. We just didn't want another name with care in the title that sort of seems sterile and not sincere. And we wanted to come up with a, a more creative way of doing it. And uh, I was a big fan of Bill Withers, who recently passed away, okay. and his song, Lean On Me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's perfect. that's where it came together. Absolutely perfect. Now, Ron, how about, how have things, um, you know, sort of changed or, or morphed in this time of this global pandemic? Has that, 
you know, set things back because I know that a people in our position, you know, who have had spinal cord injuries or strokes are in, uh, you know, a high risk demographic. So some folks might not want not to let strangers, but to let people in their home. And then some of the caregivers, I'm sure they don't want to be going out and going into to other people's homes as well. So tell us how this has sort of crimped maybe your style a bit. No, you're absolutely right, John. Uh, it, 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 it's everybody's apprehensive. And, and, and all of us in the New York area, we felt uh, the ravages of COVID uh, much more intensely, I think, than most of the other countries, certainly initially. And, and we get it. And 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 you have you have people like us who are uh, more at risk, and you have older people who are more at risk, and then you have caregivers coming into the home. Caregivers uh, are are apprehensive about going into the home, and the families are apprehensive about having someone come into the home. One of the things we've done to to sort of alleviate the concern is we've uh, promoted the idea of having a, a live-in help for people who need that. Um, I'm, I'm really talking not not necessarily our community, but uh, just uh, older people who who need that kind of help. Mm-hmm. And that way, there's less traffic going in and out, and they're really much more comfortable with it that way. Yeah, you don't. This is not your business. Is not solely for spinal cord injured and stroked and things like that. You you help, as you said, um, elderly people and and the like, right? Yeah, elderly is the is the bulk of it. You know, listen, I'm I just turned uh, 52 years old. Well, not just in back in January, and I know that um, you know friends that are my age, their parents are, are starting to fail. And so this is something that, you know, we didn't used to talk about when we would go out and have a couple of beers, but the older we get, that's what we're talking about now. Like who has somebody living with mom or who's coming by the house. And so this is a perfect business for, for people like them to look into. And, uh, and I will definitely make sure that they do that. What to you, Ron, as someone who needs, uh, help at home, what to you, uh, makes a good caregiver. Well, I think what makes a good caregiver is somebody who's conscientious and uh, and experienced. And I, a lot of the other stuff I think can come can be worked on. But if 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 they're conscientious and they're invested in the relationship and they have the temperament, then that generally is going to be uh, a really good recipe for success. Mm-hmm. And in particular. As I mentioned earlier, if they can get compensated to to the level where they can they can earn a decent living wage, and that will make all the difference in putting putting the package together. Yeah, I I know because I I went through in in the beginning. I had a bunch of uh, home health aides. One of them almost lit my house on fire. One of them, a couple of them, fell asleep ten minutes into their shift. Right. And so Let's see. Yeah. I just, you know, I, it was almost like I would look over at this person and, you know, they were doing their job, but it was like, I resented them because I thought I can't handle my business anymore. And this person has to do everything for me. And, and I just really didn't want them to be there. And so it's tough. You have to find the right person that you really gel with. Yeah, you do. And, and we make, we make a point of, uh, requiring at least two references of people they've worked with. We take a fingerprint, send it to the FBI. So there, there's certainly other things we do to make sure um, 
you're getting what you need. Yeah. And speaking about other things that we do, tell our listeners about para rowing. How did you get involved with that and how fulfilling is that? Well, my friends always, you know, my, my friends knew that I, I was always interested in, in various sports and they were trying to find something for me to, to take an interest in. So one thing is I, I tried um, rock climbing, but to me, that was just, it, there was no grace and and agility it was all just muscle on the upper body and i was like this is not interesting other people said well you should try um wheelchair basketball and i'm like well i was a lousy basketball player before so i'm certainly not going to be good now <laughs> and i had a lot of trouble yeah. finding something that that would work for me and eventually an old friend of mine from columbia from grad school very active rower, been rowing his entire life. And he he runs a club in Rockland County. And he said, you know what, we're going to start uh, an adaptive uh, branch to our club. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. And I, I figured I'd give it a shot. And uh, I, I went out there and uh, I it, it, it took a while uh, to get the hang of it because the, the stroke is... I, the stroke for for disabled athletes is not the same as uh, for the able-bodied. You okay. can't use your legs, and a big part of rowing is your legs. And 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 you sort of have to get you got to get technique, you got to get some strength. And uh, eventually, uh, I started to get uh, pretty good at it. And I've competed in races uh, from um, Hartford to to Philadelphia. And uh, last year, I competed a race in in Hartford and I capsized. Oh boy. And there I, and it's, we're strapped in the seat in it because we don't have the, uh, the, the trunk control. Sure. And you have a, I had a, a vest over that and it all got stuck. Oh, and I, I was, uh, and I was thinking to myself as I'm struggling to get out of, uh, dis- dislodge myself and, and sort of, grab some air as I'm doing it. I'm thinking as I'm fighting to save myself, I'm thinking, damn, Mm -hmm. I really do want to save my life. I really want to proceed. I got so much good stuff to do. And it was, it was, for me, it was in some ways it was enlightening and it was invigorating that after all the challenges of, of, of getting my life back and post, post uh, all those surgeries and being in the hospital and rehab and, and I, know that I still have so much to live for. This isn't going to how it's, this is not how it's supposed to end, right? You're thinking that that is not going to be how it's ending. Yeah. I am not going to drown here on this day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I pulled myself up and I kept getting enough air to keep myself going until somebody was able to come over and, and save me. Unbelievable. And what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> what do I do? Three weeks later, I'm back in the boat. I'm competing in the head of the Schuylkill race in Philadelphia, one of the most prestigious races. And I won a silver medal, which was awesome. That's tremendous. Boy, talk about if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's amazing. And, you know, maybe you had, maybe you, you chalk some of that up to that, you know, almost ca- or capsizing in that cathartic moment that you had. Do you think maybe you, you drew from that? I do think I drew from that. And I, I think that, that, that gave me some inner strength by, by facing off against that adversity and pushing back. 
There's no doubt. You know, the human spirit, you, you learn about where the human spirit can take you. I mean, I see some of these, um, some of these stories that I, I see on Twitter and it's people that are doing things that are above and beyond what anybody would have ever thought. And I like to retweet stuff like that. And so uh, the human spirit can, can take you as far as you will let it. And uh, it sounds like it took you to a silver medal back in uh, the head of the Schuylkill right there in your old stomping grounds, right there in Penn, right? Yep. Absolutely. And I was hoping to do the head of the Charles in Boston mm-hmm. uh, next month. But uh, I've been out of commission because of COVID yeah. uh, for this season, and we'll have to give it a shot next year. I have to tell a funny story. I went to college in uh, Rhode Island. I went to Providence College, and I remember seeing- You're this. a friar. I'm a friar. Yes, I am. Yeah. In fact, I just took part in, uh, they asked me to do an alumni a PC podcast that was uh, that was a thrill. I did that last week. But I, I remember- uh, Was that I, Billy Donovan? Yes, it was Billy Donovan. Yeah. Billy Ernie DiGregorio? Yes. Yes. That's uh, Rick Pitino was the head coach my freshman year uh, of the basketball team, and Lou Lamorello was the head coach of the hockey team. So we had- Wow. Yeah, wow. we had some royalty up there, some, some big guns. Uh, but uh, speaking of the head of the Charles- my sister went to Boston College, and she was a couple of years ahead of me. And I always used to hear her talking about the head of the Charles. So I saw signs in the uh, the student union; they were taking buses up. So I said, "I got to go to the head of the Charles." I just thought, Ron, this is you're going to laugh. I just thought it was a huge party where people went to drink. I had no idea there were races. I heard somebody say, "Hey, check out what's going on." I said, "What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about races." I thought it was just a big tailgate party. So how about that? Well, it's both, I guess. Yes, it certainly <laughs> is both. Well, listen, I appreciate you joining me. One one question that I always like to ask fellow SCIers uh, before we go is, if I could snap my fingers right now and you were immediately able-bodied again, Ron, what is the first uh, thing that you would do? There are so many things. I can't even begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you what I would do, and it's my pat answer. I would pick up my... Um, well, I don't have Walkman anymore. I would pick up my, uh, my cell phone. That's got all my music on it, put my earbuds in, slap on my sneakers and go out for a, a five or 10 mile run. If my body could still take me that way, just, you know, feel my feet hit the ground and have the sweat roll down my face and that salty sweat in my, in my mouth. I mean, that would be the first thing that I would do. Well, that's certainly something that I would enjoy as well. I'd certainly be on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I would love to, to, to go climbing, uh, do some, uh, do some hiking, mountain climbing, or maybe even go bicycling. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's nice to think about. It's something that I ask all my, uh, my brethren and I get a different answer. I think the funniest one I got was from Eric Legrand who said, the, he said, the first thing, John, I said, yeah, what's the first thing he said? Well, I think I'd run butt naked right out my front door into the street. So all my neighbors. Is that a great one? He said it was the first thing that came to his mind. And so uh, and so we'll go with that. But Ron Gold, I, I want to thank you for joining me. I know uh, you and I have been uh, going back and forth on Twitter and, and email. And I, I look forward to one day getting the chance to meet you in person. I'm in New Providence and, and you're not too far. So uh, we will have to uh, have a cup of coffee or something one of these days. I look forward to it. And 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 tell our uh, listeners one more time how they can get in touch with Lean On We. Sure. 
Uh, there's a website. It's leanonwewithw.com. Excellent. Ron, again, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll continue to listen to the quadcast. I will. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ron Gold. And if you're interested more in Lean on We, check out his website, which is leanonwe.com. Now, our next show is going to be a big one. That is because I will be joined by singer and actress Ali Stroker. Ali is a Ridgewood, New Jersey native who at just two years old became paralyzed from the chest down following an automobile accident. That is not the end of her story, though, my friends. You see, Allie did not let that get in her way. She is the first actress who uses a wheelchair for mobility to appear on a Broadway stage and to be nominated for and win a Tony. In 2019, she won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for her performance in Oklahoma. We have not settled on a date yet, but I will let you know when it's coming. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco from Sound Lounge in New York City. I appreciate all you do for me, my friend. And once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much left to